This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of crimes against children, and as such, it may not be suitable for all listeners. As always, discretion is advised. Today, we start in Birch Hill, a suburb to the very south of the town of Bracknell in Berkshire. In a quirk of town planning, all the streets are laid out in alphabetical order, and so... The area in which today's episode takes place, Ladybank, can be found just south of Leppington, Liscombe and Ludlow. It's a grey, rainy and miserable day in early November when my partner and I travel to Bracknell. Our first stop is the South Hill Park Arts Centre, about 0.3 of a mile away from Ladybank. The centre is a large, red-brick, grade-two-listed Georgian mansion which has been modified to include gallery space, a restaurant, a theatre and even a cinema. The grounds of the old mansion make up South Hill Park, which lies in a sort of ring around the house. Nowadays, what was once a continuous area of countryside has become split between the front and back of the park, separated by Ringsmead Road, which runs along the north side and splices the landscape in a stark illustration of the urbanisation that occurred in the area in the 1970s. To the back of the house is a space complete with an ornamental garden, a large rolling lawn, a kid's playground, wooded areas, and the short, tarmacked walking trails which lead around the edge of the South Lake and disappear off into the nearby housing estates before looping close to the back of Birchill Junior's primary school. During our visit, despite the gloom of the day, on the paths which wind their way around the water, we see plenty of dog walkers and people out enjoying the quiet of the park even through the autumn drizzle. A little over midway around the lake, at the point where the water tapers, there stands a bridge which crosses the lower half of the South Lake. It was here, near a dirt path, reportedly down a muddy bank under the cover of woodland, that the body of seven-year-old Stacy Quirrell was discovered on the evening of Sunday the 24th of January, 1993. Stacy had been reported missing from her home in Ladybank by her mother, Gillian, at a little after 6 o'clock p.m., and police and neighbours had swiftly gathered together to search frantically around the Birchill area. She was found just a few hours later, at around 9 o'clock that evening, by police dog handler Ian Boswell. Speaking about the discovery, he said... I saw a small child lying on her back under some overhanging branches. I thought she was asleep, and I knelt down and spoke her name. I felt for a pulse, but I could not find one. Following this, ambulance staff arrived quickly at the scene, and unsuccessful attempts were made to revive her where she lay, before she was rushed to Heatherwood Hospital in Ascot. 
Despite the best efforts of the paramedics, Stacy was officially pronounced dead just a short while later. As police sealed off paths and a nearby lane for forensic examination, news of Stacy's death began to spread through the community. At Birchill Juniors, where she had attended primary school, shocked staff reportedly burst into tears as they heard of the events of the previous evening. A special assembly was organised to pray for her family and to remember Stacy. On Tuesday the 26th of January, her devastated father, Steve Norton, a painter and decorator by trade who had little contact with his daughter following the breakdown of his relationship with her mum, paid a visit to see her body. Accompanied by his sister Christine, an ashen-faced Steve spoke to reporters, telling them she was really happy the last time I saw her full of beans. Her loss has not sunk in yet because I am so shocked. But when I see my little girl's body, I know all hell is going to break out inside. The same day that Steve Norton paid his visit to Stacy, it was announced in the papers that what had happened that Sunday evening was, in all likelihood, a tragic accident. Stacy, it was reported, had walked out of her home in the council flat in Ladybank and, somehow, while walking through the woodland at the back of the South Hill Park Arts Centre, she had snagged her necklace, or necklaces, depending on which report you read, on a low-hanging branch. Unable to release herself, seven-year-old Stacy Quarrapal had been strangled with her own jewellery. Despite this revelation, police continued to conduct inquiries and searched for anything that would shed light on what had happened that evening. It was revealed later that the man in charge of the investigation, Detective Superintendent John Bound, had remained sceptical that Stacy's death was accidental. On Friday the 29th of January, it was announced that Following a second post-mortem conducted at police request, more marks had appeared on her neck and that what had at first seemed to be an accidental death was now being classified as murder. On Tuesday the 2nd of February, Superintendent Bound told the papers, Stacy was certainly not manually strangled and the necklaces or something very similar could have been the ligature used to strangle her. And so, what first appeared to be an accident became a murder, and the pertinent questions became, who killed Stacy Quarrapal? Why is it that even now police are reluctant to re-examine her case? And finally, how did a seven-year-old girl end up alone in woodland on a dark night in January. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines Podcast. Thank you.
In the days following Stacy's murder, the timeline of the events of that Sunday evening was reported in varying forms, although the main points remained much the same. Stacy, along with her mum, 33-year-old Gillian, and her two-year-old half-sister, lived together in a two-bedroom council flat in the blocks known as Ladybanks. On the day my partner and I come to the area, we briefly visit the blocky red-brick estate of flats which make up Ladybank. I snap a few photos of the weathered grey and turquoise garages and of the footpath which runs along the back and stretches the length of the buildings close to Birchill Juniors, where Stacy attended school. In the parking space to the side of the Quarrapool's block, black bin bags lay, their contents strewn over the ground, and a solitary McDonald's cup stands upright to one side of the mess. The area is a little run down, but... Despite the explosion of rubbish, the majority of the buildings and the location itself seem relatively neat and quite well kept. Back in 1993, Gillian Quarrapal, or Jill as she was sometimes referred to, had recently broken up with her partner, Steve Hartigan, a separation which had reportedly upset Stacy a great deal. Despite their relationship having broken down, Steve and Gillian remained friends, and on that Sunday he was one of four people who were apparently round at the flat that afternoon. While early on it was said that the group were sitting around drinking tea together, at the inquest it was revealed that they were actually smoking pot, as the papers described it. Initially, it was claimed that Stacy had been sent to bed at around 5.30pm that afternoon, following an argument with Gillian, but later that appears to have been disputed. Gillian herself described how she put the kids to bed, and claimed that a short while later, her friends heard a shout coming from their room. She said, I wasn't sure if I had heard it, so I did not go into the room. I went to run a bath. I didn't get in, but I went to check the children. I bent down to kiss Stacy goodnight, but she wasn't in bed. Her big teddy was in there, with the covers pulled up over it. It appears as if this was around 6pm that evening, and according to Gillian, immediately after her discovery the search party was assembled and police called. Steve Norton, Stacy's father, told the papers that she was a very happy child, one who was always smiling and giggling. At her funeral, the Reverend described her as a bright, energetic and normal child who was sometimes a bit cheeky, but also surprisingly thoughtful and caring. Despite this, there were reports that she had been unhappy at home following her mum's breakup with Steve Hartigan the previous week, and it was also said that she had run away on two separate occasions, although never when it had been dark outside. At the inquest into her death, Steve Hartigan claimed that Stacy had been having a few issues, saying, She had a problem with petty stealing and I was told that she had started taking things from her friends at school. 
I had also been told that on a previous occasion she had run away from home. Adding to this, the court was informed that on one occasion, seven-year-old Stacy had threatened to kill herself. That evening, though, as far as Gillian could tell, there was no obvious trigger for her leaving. Later, she speculated that it might have been out of a desire to draw attention to herself. Regardless of her reason, it appears as if Stacy, who was four foot tall with shoulder-length brown hair, had dressed herself in a white t-shirt with a Mickey Mouse motif, royal blue tracksuit bottoms and a mauve jacket, and, clutching a small mauve holdall with patterned sides, had left the flat of her own accord. While what happened to Stacy and the few hours in between Gillian putting her to bed and her body being found remains a mystery, on Thursday the 4th of March 1993, Detective Superintendent John Bound told the Bracknell Times that he believed that she had walked along a path near the lakeside, towards South Hill Park. This, he said, was likely the place where she was killed, and her body was then taken to the spot where she was found. The pathologist's findings echoed the sentiment, and adding weight to the theory were the recollections of dog handler Ian Boswell, who noted at the time that her shoes were remarkably clean, considering the wet and muddy ground around where she was discovered. Following the announcement that Stacy's death was now a murder investigation, the number of police officers assigned to the case grew to over 30, and in the coming days they spent their time canvassing the community, talking to walkers in the area where she was found, as well as her school friends. Detective Superintendent Bound claimed that there had been 30 or so people who could have been in the area on the Sunday night, and a police spokesman reiterated their desire to speak to any member of the public who might have seen Stacy that evening. As well as their efforts to trace walkers, they also began the process of speaking to residents in the Birchill area of Bracknell, and in a little under two weeks, they had reportedly visited 300 separate homes, roughly half the house-to-house -house inquiries that they were expecting to have to carry out before the conclusion of the investigation. Despite the increase in officers assigned to Stacy's case, it seems as if the investigation was proving to be slow going. Part of the problem appears to be that there was very little in the way of physical evidence for them to work with. Stacy's body itself revealed that there were no signs of sexual assault and that she had not been involved in a struggle with her killer. Her father, Steve Norton, was adamant that her mum was very strict and that she would have been taught to be wary of strangers and this appears to be backed up by the apparent lack of witnesses that Sunday night. Police spokesman Chief Inspector John Reeve told the press that, despite officers having spent four hours speaking to people around South Hill Park Arts Centre, nothing revealing had come out of it. Steve Norton, who had been devastated to discover that his daughter's death was actually a murder, 
appealed directly to the public, saying, Someone must have seen something. I just want them to come forward and tell the police. In another interview, he added, It's difficult for me to explain the way I feel. I can't believe that someone has done this to her. I just want the person who did this caught. Stacy's mother was said to be too traumatised to even make a public appeal. And so her ex, the small and quietly spoken Steve Hartigan, became the unofficial mouthpiece for Gillian and her side of the family. He said... I was there on the night Stacy went missing. I knew her very well. She was very caring and open. For someone to attack a kid, they've got to be mad. I can't begin to comprehend their mentality. Jill and the rest of the family are devastated. Jill lived her life around the girls. She was totally devoted to them. Surely somebody must have seen something last Sunday. There must have been people around on the evening Stacy was killed. A little over a week from when she was murdered, it was revealed that police efforts had uncovered a single witness who might have seen Stacy walking near the bridge over South Hill Park Lake. But that was the only sighting and couldn't be confirmed. As a matter of fact, as far as I can establish, this sighting represents the only one uncovered throughout the investigation. And while it was dark that evening, it does seem unusual that no one else would have noticed a small girl wandering through the park alone. Police themselves obviously also thought this was an oddity because by the 8th of February, they had turned their focus inwards and began the process of quizzing Gillian Querapel's friends and associates in a bid to find out more about Stacy's home life. I've touched on it briefly, but I want to try and give you a little more detail into the Querapel family background. Stacy was born on the 29th of May 1985, and by the time of her arrival, Gillian and Steve Norton had split up and officially Stacy's surname was registered as Money, Gillian's maiden name. By September of 1989, Gillian, who had first been married in 1980 to a man named Roland Jewett, got hitched again, this time to Barry Querapel. In 1990, she and Barry had a daughter together Gillian's third child, according to the newspapers, although there are few mentions of her having had another daughter, and I'll briefly touch on this again later. She and Barry were together for a few years, but then they too split, although not before Stacy had adopted Querapel as her surname. Sometime after that, Gillian and Steve Hartigan who was living with her and her young daughters at the Ladybank flat, got together. In 1993, Steve Hartigan is described variously in the papers as a lodger, a friend or a boyfriend of Gillian's, and he claimed that following their breakup the week before Stacy's murder, he had moved out of the flat 
and that he had become only a close friend. On Thursday the 11th of February 1993, the other Steve, Stacy's father, told the Bracknell Times a little about his relationship with Stacy and her home life in particular. As coverage of the murder had spread to the national newspapers, they had been quick to rake over the facts of Gillian's love life, and Steve was keen to set the record straight. Addressing reports that Gillian had had what the papers described as a string of boyfriends since her split with him, Steve said, Gillian was a perfect mother in my eyes. I always saw Stacy clean and tidy and happy. To me, this means she had a happy life. Stacy's mother did not have a lot of different men. She was only married once to Barry Querapel. That was about two years ago. Speaking more specifically about his relationship with Stacy, he said that she had never not known who her father was, elaborating with, I wasn't around the clock father, but we always got on well when we saw one another. Reading through the papers from the time, it's clear that Steve's contact with Stacy was infrequent at best. Before her death at the end of January, he had last seen her before Christmas in a chance encounter at the local shops. Other than that, he talked of how he treasured the memory of her previous birthday when he had taken her to the seaside on holiday. He spoke fondly of those recollections while at the same time acknowledging that Gillian was taking the brunt of the pain, saying that she must be going through a lot worse than I am. It's a tough time for all of us. We are all thinking of her and her family. In another interview on Tuesday the 9th of February, he revealed that he and Gillian had had no contact following their daughter's murder. This, he implied, was due to the fact that Gillian herself remained too traumatised by what had happened. It is clear from both this interview and the one on February the 11th that, while Steve himself was convinced that his daughter had been well looked after and loved, the articles published around that time had begun shifting to a more accusatory tone, and Steve was forced to say, from the day Gillian and I split up, she acted as both mother and father, and her children always came first. Stacy was loved and never neglected. He was disgusted, he claimed, with those people who thought otherwise. On the same day that Steve gave his interview to the Bracknell Times, Gillian, who had remained in daily contact with the police, was arrested. She was kept in custody for 87 hours, with police being granted two extensions to her questioning time. Finally, at 7pm on Sunday the 14th, she was released without charge and returned to a secret location where she had been staying with friends. Spokesman Chief Inspector Reeve spoke of her release, saying, We never had all our eggs in one basket, and we are carrying on the inquiry where we left off.
We have no new leads and will be speaking to more people and making new appeals. On Tuesday the 16th of February, Gillian herself released a statement, again through Steve Hartigan, who said she wants to make it clear that the police were excellent in the way they handled everything during her arrest. She does not blame the police for their action and is not bitter, but is very concerned that Stacy's killer is caught. We did find it unusual, but Jill was arrested for general questioning. Jill's close friends are being very supportive. Considering she is coping very well, but she is very dazed. She does not care about the rumours, what people are saying about her or what they think. She just wants the killer caught. Following Gillian's release, there was a period of quiet in the newspapers, broken briefly in early March when it was reported that the police had been in contact with the Child Murder Bureau in Derbyshire, who they hoped would assist them in drawing up a profile of Stacy's killer in order to get an idea of their likely age, location and background. The Bureau, Superintendent John Bound said, had a database of all the child murders in the country for the last 10 to 15 years. In a sign of their increasing lack of leads, despite the fact that there was no evidence of Stacy having been sexually assaulted, the murder squad began to widen their field of thinking, bringing in anyone local who had ever been convicted of violent or sexual offences. By Friday the 19th of March, though, this idea appears to have been sidelined, and even the killer's profile, which had been built up by the Child Murder Bureau, was scrapped, because, as Superintendent Bound said, the information used to compile the profile is based on past child murders of a sexual nature. We don't have a sexual side to this case, and the information provided by a profile isn't of any use to us. Focusing again on the area in which Stacy was last known to have been, they appealed for two men, a jogger and a man with a guitar, who were seen in the woods at around 6.30pm on the Sunday evening, though these men came forward and were soon ruled out. Despite the fact that police were freely admitting that it appeared as if Stacy was killed by someone she knew, on the 11th of March, they made a new appeal for two more people who might have been in South Hill Park at the time of the murder. One was a man spotted at around 6.30pm crossing the park bridge. He was about 5 foot 8 inches in height with dark, short hair, wearing a three-quarter length donkey jacket with dark suede shoulder pads. The other was seen at the back of nearby Liscombe House at about 7pm. He was also around 5 foot 8 inches and aged 20 to 35, with short blonde hair, grey trousers and trainers. The two were described as important witnesses, although I could find no follow-up to these reports. Off the back of the police's ever-expanding net of interviewees, they talked to night shift workers at the Hilton National Hotel and also Sainsbury's supermarket, which were both close to where Stacy was found.
They appealed for potential witnesses, including six different individuals known to have been in the area that evening. But again, nothing seems to come of these inquiries. In the first few months of the investigation, a palpable fear was felt in the community of Birch Hill. Initially, as is so often the case, residents were wary of letting their young children out of their sight. Parents left work early to pick up their kids, and the uncertainty surrounding the identity of Stacy's killer left the locals worried. The area in which she was discovered was not far away from the back of Birch Hill Junior School and had reportedly been a popular spot for kids to build dens, but, the papers reported, now the children were staying away. There was a sense amongst them that the area had become haunted. Regardless of these early fears, by mid-March, the mood amongst the residents of Birch Hill had apparently shifted, and for a while, police had to deal with what they thought were morbid souvenir hunters, bent on stealing the witness appeal posters which had been dotted around the area. This seems to be an illustration of the shift in public thinking, one which was echoed around the same time by the police spokesman Martin Sawyer, who claimed that, while there was a chance the killer may have been sexually motivated and was disturbed before they could carry out any abuse, in all likelihood, the answer was that Stacy was probably killed by someone she knew. There is an oddness to the reporting of the early months of the investigation. I've researched enough unsolved cases at this point to be able to tell when something doesn't quite seem right, or the whole truth isn't being spoken. While all the news stories seem to speak to a lack of new witnesses and available evidence, there is a sense that something else was quietly happening below the radar, and if you'd looked for it at the time, it would have been no surprise to hear that by early May, police had submitted a file on one single suspect to the Crown Prosecution Service, with the aim of charges being brought against the individual. With a CPS announcement scheduled for mid to late June of 93, Stacy's father spoke again to the papers. His comments aimed directly at the killer, as he said, How can you live with yourself after doing this? The killer cannot have a soul. As no one had been formally announced as the main suspect, since her arrest, Gillian Querapel had, according to Steve Hartigan, been forced into hiding. Without confirmation, following her questioning in February, the public had drawn their own conclusions. Her family, Steve claimed, had turned against her, and to add to her pain, she and Barry Querapel's younger daughter was being cared for elsewhere. Steve, who was speaking exclusively to the Bracknell Times, took a reporter to the spot where Stacy had been found. As rain misted down upon them and the sound of distant children playing floated through the air, he spoke of how he and Gillian had visited the location on Stacy's birthday. At two in the morning, 
the pair laid flowers and stood together in silent vigil. While police waited on the CPS's guidance, Stacy's family was still unable to bury her. And so, Steve said, This is the best that we can do. We've got nowhere else to go. He spoke frankly to the reporter about the troubles following Gillian's arrest, saying, Jill's all alone. It's her daughter that was killed. Every bit of help she's needed, I've had to sort out for her, or she's had to sort it out for herself. She takes it day by day. She doesn't go out very much because she doesn't want people to know where she's living. The gossip on the streets is hurtful to her. Stace was her world. She can't take any more. She's at the end of her tether. Speaking directly about the CPS and sounding like a man who knew nothing of the details of the submitted file, he asked, Why has the arrest taken so long? Why the delay? The police say they know who it is now, according to the papers, and they're waiting to see if they've got enough evidence. Why has this person been left on the street for so long? It's a child murderer. Why are the CPS taking their time? The way I see it, this case hasn't been solved yet. The head man is off on IRA investigations and the incident room has been cut down from 30 to 14. They should be out there looking. Believe me, at the end of it all, when it's all sorted out, I'm going to have plenty to say. And I think Jill will as well. On June the 22nd, 1993, the news broke that, despite the police's conviction in the file they had submitted to the CPS, the verdict was that they did not have enough evidence to proceed with charges. An unnamed official source told the papers that this decision had made the police feel as if the CPS were acting as judge and jury, and that their decision was the wrong one. When asked about this, a spokesperson from the prosecution service was quoted as saying, The reason is straightforward. On the evidence currently available, there is no realistic prospect of a conviction. Following this, the detectives involved in the murder inquiry were told that they must remain silent, and an aggravated Detective Superintendent John Bound was barred from holding a press conference instead being forced to announce that, despite the still-open case file, the murder squad was being scaled back. For Stacy's family, the news was difficult to swallow. Steve Norton spoke of his dismay at the decision, saying, I had been hoping that my daughter's murderer would be standing in the dock. I am angry and bitter, but not towards the police. I just can't understand the CPS saying that this shouldn't go to court. I think the evidence the police have should be put before a jury. I want a life for a life. On the part of Gillian Querapol, she said that she was distressed and disgusted by the decision, saying that pain, anger and hurt would remain for many years. I would, she said appreciate the chance to grieve in peace. The one positive to come out of it all was that plans could finally be made for Stacy's funeral, 
As Gillian and Steve Norton continued to be unable to communicate over matters, Steve found himself alienated from the process of planning the funeral. He aired his grievances in the papers on the 1st of July, the day before it was due to take place. Gillian and her friend Steve Hartigan had realised that there were probably locals who wished to attend the service and pay their respects, and so an announcement of the date was made public. Steve Norton was upset by this, and especially at Steve Hartigan, who he thought was taking his place in the family. He said, It's annoyed me that he is there doing the things I should have been doing. It's a kick in the teeth. I had wanted to be more involved in the funeral arrangements with Gillian. I would not take over, but be involved as a dad. Now, I'm just going to pay my respects to my daughter and lay the wreath. For his part, Steve Hartigan, who had previously spoken of the minimal role Stacy's father had played in her life, said that the arrangements had been put in place to tell Steve of the funeral before the announcement was officially made. On Friday the 2nd of July 1993, a little over six months on from her death, Stacy was finally laid to rest at East Hampstead Cemetery. Reverend Theobald, who conducted the 26-minute service, was keen to acknowledge the anger that people were feeling. But, he said, this is not the time or the place to express those feelings. He went on to say, no one can overestimate the sense of loss and waste that is felt. Stacy did not find success and happiness as an adult, but that did not mean that her life was not important. Alongside hymns recorded by pupils of Birchill Junior School, the song Medals for Mothers, which Stacy had reportedly once dedicated to Gillian, was played, and a poem penned by Gillian, read out. In part it read, Do not close your heart to how you feel. Dream, and don't be afraid your dreams aren't real. Close your eyes and pretend it's just the two of us again. I wish I could find the words to say how much I miss you. As the service drew to an end, Stacy's body, which rested in a small white coffin, was lowered into the ground. An emotional Gillian, who was surrounded by friends, broke down. While she watched her daughter's burial, Steve Norton stood a distance away. Gillian, he said, had told him that he was not allowed to go to the graveside while she mourned. As he watched her leave the cemetery, he was finally able to go to his daughter's grave. Amongst tributes lay his wreath, which read, To the one that was so pure, you will always be locked in our hearts for now and evermore. Rest in peace, Stacy. Love, Dad. With the funeral finally over, and the investigation having been all but wound up, Gillian Querapel was keen to live a quiet life as she attempted to come to terms with what had happened to her daughter. There were two significant events in the coming months, though, that would put pay to that. The first occurred on August the 20th. 
Following her arrest, she had been forced to move home permanently. And despite this, she and Steve Hartigan, who had accompanied her to the new address, had been subject to a string of attacks and threats as people learned of their new home. Gillian's car tires were slashed, bricks were thrown through her window, and then, terrifyingly, on Friday, August the 20th, an arson attack occurred at her home. Speaking again for the pair, Steve Hartigan said, Jill woke up at about 1.30 a.m. when she heard a big bang. We jumped out of bed and saw flames leaping up our front doorway. The fire had taken hold of the carpet and was well alight. We called the fire brigade and they said it was started with petrol, but forensic officers from the police said they could not find any trace of what started the fire. They must have poured petrol all over the bottom of the door, lit it and then run away. Because Jill was interviewed by the police, some people around her think she is guilty. We were frightened that night when we saw the flames, but we are not running away. We are not frightened of what people say. We have nothing to hide. Regardless of their brave front, elsewhere it was reported that when they saw the fire, Steve and Gillian were too afraid to open their front door. Compounding the fear, a week later it was claimed in the Bracknell Times that on the morning of the attack, a mystery caller had telephoned into the newspaper's offices asking cryptically, Have you been round to Mrs Querapel's lately? Before hanging up. While there are no more reports of attacks against Steve or Gillian, the next event which would have shattered their attempts to lay low was the announcement that there was a strong possibility that at the delayed inquest, evidence would be publicly heard which pointed directly to the suspected killer. The decision as to whether or not the full investigative findings would be shared was down to East Berkshire Coroner Robert Wilson. But Bracknell's Police Coroner's Officer Brian Thomas told the papers it's my opinion that evidence which would have been put before the Crown Court will be heard at the inquest. Though, he added firmly, this will be an inquest, not a trial. I think it's important to remember this when you hear the next part of the episode, because it's very easy to come to conclusions. But just bear in mind, Stacey's case is still unsolved. And regardless of the feelings of the police, the CPS was convinced that the allegations would not stand up in court. It wasn't until June of 1994 that the inquest finally opened at the Guildhall in Windsor. While statements taken by police during the investigation were read out, no witnesses were called. Furious at this decision, Steve Norton, who had been hoping to learn what happened to his daughter, said, From the word go, this hasn't gone right. It has just been one long nightmare. The coroner is the only one who can go to the Home Office over the heads of the CPS, but for him to take everything from statements is just sweeping it under the carpet. I have waited all this time, but I've not had one bit of luck on my side. On the police's part, 
They echoed their earlier sentiments, saying that witnesses would not be called because there was nothing to be gained from holding a murder trial in a coroner's court. The contents of the statements, though, were still enough to reportedly have sickened Steve. The inquest heard of how Gillian, who, it was revealed, had since had both her other daughters taken into care, had struggled to cope with Stacy and her younger sister. Barry Querapel, her ex-husband, made a series of damning accusations, saying she would tell me that she had knocked Stacy across the room or picked her up and given her a good shaking. Stacy was not really bad, but it was like a game to her to see how far she could go before Gillian broke and slapped her. She told me lots of times she had given Stacy a good shaking, and on one occasion she took hold of Stacy by the neck and shook her until she went blue. She would just scream at Jill and the baby would start screaming too. I saw her pick up the younger daughter by the back of her dungarees and throw her in the cot very hard. He also told of how he had gone around to the house one day to get some of his clothing and that Gillian had attacked him with an iron bar. Also included was a statement made by Gillian's sister, Denise, who claimed that she had asked her who she thought murdered Stacy. Gillian, she said, went quiet, and then she laughed. The statement read, She said, I could have done it. Her laugh sent a shiver down my spine. It was as though for a split second Jill was a different personality. I was panicking and I said, well, you must have done something really bad for someone to have done that to Stacy." As well as the witness statements, police also submitted soil samples which they claimed linked Gillian to the spot where Stacy was found. The coroner Robert Wilson, though, was keen to stress that to him the samples appeared inconclusive. The verdict, when it arrived, was found to be unlawful killing, with Wilson, who was obviously sceptical of the evidence, saying, What parent at some time has not been driven to distraction with children playing up? There can't be a mother in the country who at some stage has not screamed at her children. As a single parent, life can't have been too easy. Driven to distraction... To do what? To slap your child? To hold it by the neck and shake it? To strangle it? Mrs Querapel is quite adamant in her memory of what happened and that to say she deliberately went out and killed her daughter is beyond belief. She is inferring that mothers can get upset and fraught with their children, but not to the extent of taking the life of one of them. Unless any further evidence is to come forward, we shall never know who murdered Stacy. But murdered, she was. Following the conclusion of the inquest, with emotions running understandably high, Gillian's first ex-husband, Roland Jewett, had to be restrained as he attempted to attack her friend, Steve Hartigan. The coroner believed that there were serious problems with the evidence submitted by the police 
and yet the damage was already done. Gillian's solicitors attempted to minimise this by issuing a statement in which they made it clear that no charges had been brought against her, going on to add that no legal aid is available for coroner's inquests, no matter how contentious the issues, complex the evidence, or damaging and unjust the allegations may be. It would have been quite impossible for Mrs Querapel to represent herself in an inquest lasting four to five weeks. Reading out highly contentious allegations in circumstances where no legal challenge to those statements can be made because of unavailability of legal aid does not make them true, and it seems to us to be a profoundly unjust gap in our legal system. Mrs Querapel has always cooperated fully with the police in their investigations. The coroner made it quite clear that she has never been charged with any offence. This is a case in which police took statements from thousands of individuals, a handful of whom are recorded as making allegations about her care of the children, which have always been denied. Steve Norton, who had initially been quick to defend Gillian, claimed that in his mind it was now clear who had killed his daughter. The facts, he said, spoke for themselves. It's so difficult with a case like this to know how to structure and frame the available information, because if you look at it on the surface, Gillian Querapel seems to be the obvious suspect. But while the summation of the coroner might have come across badly, it also raises the question of just because someone was a violent person, a claim which Gillian herself always denied, does this mean that they committed murder? If she didn't, what she went through over the year and a half from her daughter's death until the conclusion of the inquest must have been horrific. In January of 1994, she appeared on live TV to plead with the police to do more to hunt for a suspect. She said of the previous year, it's been horrendous. It's been hell and it's not getting any better. I hope whoever has done this comes forward. In the interview, she called for a television reconstruction of the events of that evening a call which was denied by the police as they said they believed they already knew the killer's identity and that they just needed one person to come forward to provide the information which would wrap up the investigation. Gillian herself called the interview a painful experience and ended it swiftly, saying that she hoped the interviewers would understand why she could not cope with any more questions. While Gillian struggled to deal with the events, early the same year, Steve Norton, who had previously appeared in court on drink driving charges and received a five-year ban as a result, was sentenced to four months in prison for driving while more than twice the legal limit, as well as driving while already banned. Defending him, Michael Weeks said, it was a difficult year for Mr Norton, which I won't go into because it's not relevant to this matter. 
While I walked through South Hill Park, I was taken with the mid-afternoon peace of the area. How the sound of the rain mingled with the whisper of the trees, and the way the murkiness of the lake gently rippled as I stood on the bridge and looked over towards the distant site of the Arts Centre. In the place where once Gillian and Steve laved flowers for Stacy in the dirt, now the ground is covered with a carpet of leaves from the overhanging trees. During my visit, I feel a keen sense of how her loss, however it occurred, was tragic and avoidable. In 2018, one of Stacy's siblings appealed under the condition of strict anonymity for her sister's case to be re-examined. A spokesman from Thames Valley Police, though, told the papers that there were no plans to reopen the case, and so, despite the fact that it feels as if there are answers still to be found, next year will mark the 30th anniversary of the murder of Stacy Quarrapal, and still, her murder remains unsolved. My thanks to those of you who have supported the show via Buy Me A Coffee or Patreon in the past couple of weeks, including Julie Cox, Anne McKell, Sal McKean, Mary Bond and Pamela. For patrons, I'll be releasing a short postscript to this case, hopefully within the next couple of days, in which I'll detail the murder of Barry Querapal. Unfortunately, I couldn't find a way to integrate it into today's episode, but I think it's an interesting extra, and one which, regardless of length, is worth sharing. <laughs>